welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, good morning, Pastor Greg, and thank you for being a part of the conversation. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, sounds fun. So, um, Greg, you're the pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, right here next to Forest Park. And I read the article that you shared with me from Christianity Today. So you're not from here, but I guess, um, was it Covenant Seminary that brought you into the area? Yeah, I had uh, had a Christian conversion experience in college. And after that, in 1994, moved to St. Louis to go to Covenant Seminary. And uh, that's when I started as an intern in the church that I'm now lead pastor. I just never left. It's been 28 years almost. Um, wow. First as an intern and then uh, running a study center and then assistant pastor and associate pastor and interim and now now for the last five years, the lead pastor. Okay. And, and then what else would you say as far as introducing you? Just how would you go about that normally? Oh gosh, well it depends on the context, right. you know. I mean, professionally, I'm I'm a Presbyterian minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, which is one of the more conservative Presbyterian denominations. Um, uh, my story is that I, I grew up um, atheist. My dad was a senior level executive in the Department of Defense. Grew up in the Washington area, and um, you know, I uh, was. Atheist. I was the gay kid uh, of two sons and uh, became a Christian in college. Um, and that's kind of set my, my life direction in a kind of unexpected turn. But uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of my story. And it was in college that you had your conversion experience? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I had, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I'd been undergoing sort of a moral conversion for a couple years because, um, you know, I was very concerned for issues of justice and right and wrong in in high school and my, my atheism. I kept it. I I doubted my atheism the way Christians doubt their Christianity. You know, <laughs> I was constantly questioning how I could hold this position and have justice be real. Have goodness be real? How could there be goodness if there's no ground of goodness? You know, like like Francis Schaeffer, the late Schaeffer talked about how, you know, when you see an older woman walking down the street with her cane, you know, you you have three options if she looks like she needs help. You can either stop and help her, or you can ignore her, look the other way, and hope she doesn't ask for help, or you can shove her in front of a car. And if there is no God who's spoken, then, then there's no way to distinguish between those because they're just it's just space plus time plus matter making choices and I didn't find that a tenable position and so I ended up believing in God I didn't know which God or what God was whether God was personal um, but uh, but I I began to suspect it was the Christian God and uh, and then as I started learning about Christianity I remember um, I got involved in a campus ministry and I remember this one, I think it was a Tuesday or Wednesday night, where, where this was discussion was over how to be sure you're a Christian. And I was sure I wasn't, but I wanted to be. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting. For the first time in my life, I, I wasn't um, asking God whether he's there. I wasn't um, begging him to forgive me. 
because um, goodness knows being a gay kid raised in the 1980s, you've got all sorts of guilt and shame. Uh, but for the first time, I was thanking him for forgiving me and for accepting me as his son and, and for clothing me in, in the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, for the first time, I think I had joy in my life. And, uh, and so I, you, f- you suddenly felt forgiveness even like before asking him? Is that kind of what you're referring to? Or? Yeah, you know, because I, 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 for the first time I understood that Christianity is not about what we do to get God on our side. It's mm-hmm. about God giving us his son to carry the burden that we couldn't carry. And when that clicked, when it was like, oh, I deserve, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve eternal life, but Jesus died to give me these things freely. And, and, uh, it was a cause of great joy. Um, you know, um, I was, I was the, the gay atheist kid who fell madly in love with Jesus. And, uh, to this day, I'm 49 years old now to this day, I've never been sexually active. I, I just don't think it's something Jesus wants me to do, but he's given me a church and a life and friends and, and, um, kind of chosen family of people who are in my life for the long haul that's been um, really great. Um, you know, I know there, there are those on kind of one side that would say I'm repressed and self-hating because I'm not sexually active, but I, I don't think sexual activity is what makes us not repressed or self-hating. <laughs> um, and on the other side, there are those who would say, you know, Greg, if, if you really repented, you'd become a heterosexual. Uh, and, and that's not a promise of the Bible, and that certainly hasn't happened. But uh, I'm happy walking with God in celibacy and pastoring my church and taking care of people and giving and receiving love in, in community. So, you know, you mentioned what brought you to consider God is just the issue of evil. So if there's evil, there's good. And you, you gave the illustration about, you know, pushing the lady in front of the car and so forth. Yeah. So I've heard, like, secular people, atheist people, mm-hmm. refer to, a, you know, human flourishing as being like that grounding, that base virtue that everything else is um, based on. Mm-hmm. And then they would make the argument, I think, that, well, it makes for uh, prospering, it makes sense for us to cooperate not push the old lady, but help the old lady because we all need each other. So we're going to flourish and do better, me and everyone else, if we do it together. So that includes being kind to one another. So they, how, have you ever considered that argument or does that work or does it? Well, it it works for them. Um, You know, with me, I, I, kind of get philosophical because there will always be times in which a society's flourishing could happen by eliminating someone. Hmm. Um, You know, you look at at Nazi Germany and they thought if they could get rid of the Jewish people, Mm -hmm. they would flourish. And it's very evolutionary thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was absolutely evil. And it wasn't evil because it hindered human flourishing or it, it was evil because human beings god's image and you're destroying something divine when you when you even speak against god's image in another person um this belief that every human being is a an image bearer of god and therefore of value and and when you do have a society where it seems like the best way it could flourish would be 
subjugating a class of people as slaves, you know, um, at that point, I want some stick-in-the-mud Jesus follower to say, no, that's evil. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, some some of the best people I know are atheists, so I, I, I don't. I don't criticize them, but to me, it's not satisfying. Okay. Yeah, just the thought of, you know, a hundred billion years from now when the stars will have gone out, no one will have ever known that any of us existed. We would have no significance objectively. And, and yet, if if there is a God, and if if Jesus rose from the dead, then that means death is, is not the end. It's a beginning and uh, a transition. Well, th- that kind of brings up another question that has been on my mind when you were mentioning some of the best people you know are atheists or something along yeah, those lines. Yeah. So I might just read this because I kind of thought it out. You know, we are all fatally marred. Um, you know, so we recognize that um, that none of us can stand before God just on our own goodness and so forth. But um, in the pool of humanity, there are... Atheists, some who seem to don't acknowledge Jesus and God and so forth, but they seem to live a life of serving and loving others. Um, They don't seem to be like gratifying the flesh, like Paul talks about, um, you know, uh, living for fornication or greed or these things. It seems like they are living to serve and be, you know, contribute and so forth. Um, But from my understanding of sin, I mean, my understanding of salvation, it seems like, well, salvation is being set free from being a slave to those things, and yet they're, they're not those who acknowledge Jesus and God and so mm-hmm. forth. So is there any particular way that you make sense of that um, hmm. when Jesus talks about or, you know, kind of equates the New Testament writers equates being a loving person with being a follower of Jesus, two together. And yet sometimes, yeah. you know, you see that outside of the Jesus group and so yeah. forth. Yeah, and you can see some of some people who claim to follow Jesus have been some of the worst people. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, all people are made in God's image. Everybody bears that. That's a common grace that, that is true to all human beings, mm-hmm. um, no matter how disabled, uh, no matter um, how fallen they may be. Um, everybody is an image bearer of God. And we all start at different places. You know, I mean, you know, the, the Christian mom might be wondering why the Jewish mom down the street is such a better mother and keeps her cool so much better and is kinder and more compassionate and more understanding and it doesn't make sense to her. But, you know, we all start at different points. You know, if you're raised in a family where the normative means of communication is screaming and it's always a power play um even if you're a christian that's going to impact you deeply and uh and somebody who's raised by very level-headed even-keeled thoughtful intellectual well-read atheist parents is probably going to have a lot more going for them on on a certain level um you know, Christianity um, is is unique in that it enables the Christian to view the non-Christian as potentially better, even if mistaken about Jesus. 
um, because our, our argument is not that we're better than everybody else, but that Christ has washed us, and we all start at different places, and God's work in us progresses, but it progresses at different rates, and so we can't uh, assume that. But yeah, I look for the image of God in everybody. Um, when I do a funeral of somebody who is not a Christian, um, I do it differently than when I do a funeral of somebody who was a Christian. When I do a, a, a Christian's funeral, I, I may ask those gathered how they saw the work of the Holy Spirit in this person, how they saw Christian love in this person, how they saw Jesus in this person. But when I'm doing a non-believer's wedding, I can or, or marriage, uh, sorry, funeral, I can I can still ask how did you see the image of God in this person? Because we're all made in God's image. That means we've got God-like qualities of, of relationality and the ability to give love and receive love and to create. Um, how did you see that in this person? Because even though we're fallen, that's never eliminated. You know, we see, yeah, you, we all have can look back at any funeral and think of the ways that somebody hurt us, their inconsistencies, but, but how do you see God's image still shine through? And so I think uh, the... Okay. the, the, the the scripture gives us a perspective to see the best in our opponent. And of course, we were, you know, the, the center of the Christian faith is a God who died for his enemies. So uh, that, that comes from, from Jesus. So it's not so much about um, comparing people with people, um, but when we're thinking about what saving does to a person's character and so forth, it's more of like where they were compared to what God has done in their lives or something along those yeah. lines, I suppose. Yeah. Like I would say, I mean, granted, I was a young atheist. You know, a high mm-hmm. school atheist is is not the most intellectually well-read, sophisticated person. But, mm-hmm. um, but I would say that one of the things... I was a good kid. I was a straight-A student. I never caused any trouble. Um... I was on all the different clubs and whatnot, and you know, I, I was I was a good kid, um, but I was also incredibly proud and angry, hmm. and uh, and I've had friends who talk about when they would go to atheist associations, you know, kind of conventions of atheists getting together, how that anger is palpable. And, you know, maybe it's not that they're sleeping with everybody like the, the Greeks were. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's that there's pride or anger that has made it more difficult for them to live in love with one another. You know, mm-hmm. the sin takes all different forms. You know, we like to pick certain sins to be respectable sins that we don't really make much of. And then other ones that are, you know unrespectable sins but it's to Jesus it's all sin we all need washing mm-hmm. yeah but the New Testament writers talk about like kind of the um, the way of the world compared to like a different way yeah. of following Jesus mm-hmm. I guess the way I kind of have tried to sum it up is maybe like more self-focused um, kind of like those who were building the Tower of Babel, like we're going to make a name for ourselves, we're going to do something for ourselves, whereas uh, it seems like with Jesus, his example is, I came not to be served, but to serve, so be other-focused, which is along the same lines of what love is, I suppose, you Mm -hmm. know, being focused on others, so I guess that's um, kind of gets down to the essence of it, I think. Yeah, I think at heart, we're 
all trying to justify ourselves, justify our existence, have some kind of significance. And some people will use religion to say, I'm one of the good people, I'm one of the righteous people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that's, that's the people Jesus clashed with more fiercely than, than anyone, were those who were trying to build an identity for themselves through their religious faithfulness. Um, but, you know, other, other people are also, you know, people try to build their significance through their career, um, until their career comes crashing down or they retire and then they become a zero in their own heart uh, or they become proud if they're successful. Um, people look to relationships to make them significant or how other people view them uh, or their appearance. Um, you know, there are all sorts of things we look to to try to make ourselves significant and ultimately they all fail us when we die, often before that, and they never forgive us when we fail. You know, if you've um, built your life on being desirable and then you gain a bunch of weight it will not forgive you that idol of desirability will never forgive you and what Christianity gives us is a way to have an identity that's received by grace as a, as a, as a child of God um, that's a identity that cannot be taken away even by death and that's one that forgives you when you fail. Um, and so I, I find Christianity to be the ultimate livable possible direction for me. Hmm. Um, I was going to ask you, just it's kind of a broad question, but just what your impression of Jesus is. And because the... the uh, gospels, they're not written like a novel. Like a novel is written where you hear, um, it's like if you were there with a video camera and you could, you know, so it seems like my view of Jesus, it's a little more idealistic. Like, I, it, almost like I don't um, know what it would be like if he was right here, you know, so I don't know him in that personal sense, it seems like. Though there is a sp- spiritual connection, I think, the Christian has with God and with Jesus, but um, I don't, so anyway, what's, um, what are your thoughts or, you know, what's your impression of Jesus? Not so much like a creed type of answer, but, um, you know, like, how do you feel about Jesus? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> he is everything to me. Um, you know, um, my, uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was very poor. He was a coal miner in Appalachia. He dropped out of first grade in 1910 to work in a coal mine. Um, you know, going and setting the dynamite down the crevices where adults couldn't reach. And and so I'm always, whenever I hear about mining accidents, I always hmm. read up on them because like those were my people. Um, even though I was raised with a pretty high level of privilege in the D.C. area, my, my mother was not. She was a coal miner's daughter. And and I remember hearing a story of a, this was much more recent, uh, a mine shaft collapse that left two uh, miners, two fairly young miners, trapped in a fairly enclosed space. Um, and it was going to take a long time for them to get, get dug out. And uh, the story I heard uh, is that... Uh, as air started getting very, very low, they both put on their, their respirator or ventilator, whatever it is that, that uh, will allow them to breathe. And it became evident that one of them 
his uh, his equipment wasn't wasn't functioning, hmm. and so um, the other guy, younger guy, single guy, looked across um, at his friend who was at that point unconscious, and he thought about his friend's wife, his young son, and so he went up, sat next to him, and took his ventilator off and put it on his friend and his friend was carried out of that mine alive but at the cost of of the other guy's life um gave his life for him and 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 that's what jesus did for me only if you could imagine it wasn't his best friend it it was the guy who stole his wife because that's what jesus did for me it's when we were his enemies that christ died for us the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And so I see Jesus as my Savior. He's the one who rescued me. You know? um, and there are a, a, a thousand stories in my mind, um, you know, uh, of, of redemption like that, um, that self-giving love for the other person's sake that Jesus did that for me to rescue me. Um, and so I love Jesus, you know. Um, and, you know, it, it, you know, when, as a young Christian, my faith was very intellectual and very much lived out, but a real appreciation for just how radical God's grace is in Jesus. Um, has really melted my heart in a lot of ways. And uh, I used to be a very angry young man, um, very angry, very opinionated, was certain about everything. And and God has made me a gentle man, uh, a kind person, a patient person, a person who is willing to suffer a long time before saying a harsh word. Um, and that's just because... I keep sinning and Jesus keeps forgiving me um, because he loves me. And, and to be loved with a love that will carry on to the other side, um, a love that puts me in a spiritual family with others who have that same relationship and that I then become family to them and them to me with all those mutual obligations and commitments. Um, you know, that to me is the beauty of Christianity. Um, you know, I think Christians in the United States often get sidetracked in politics one way or the other, one side or the other, and start viewing other people as their enemies primarily and as opponents on a on a battlefield instead of as, you know, human beings on a mission field mm-hmm. that we're called to love. And so uh you know, so someone with a story like mine, you know, we, we can easily get caught in the middle. Um, and, uh, and yet what I want to see is Christians in the U.S. return to love as their primary ethic and view people through the love of Jesus, through the gospel. Um, don't view people as their sin. View them as the image of God that they are and the, the, and the child of God they could become. So what brought you from an earlier, more intellectual faith 
to this more now kind of a humble, um, heartfelt type of faith? Yeah, a lot of it was just understanding much more deeply the gospel of Jesus. That um, that not only was all of my sin transferred to Jesus on the cross so that I bear it no more. He, he has borne it for me, and so I will, you know, for me, judgment day has moved from the future to the past. It's done. But, but even more so, St. Paul talks about how when we believe in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us, just as it was credited to Abraham back in the Old Testament. Um, and, and what that means is that Jesus gives me his resume um, so that all the righteous things that Jesus did are now credited to me so that it's as if I fed the 5,000 and I raised Lazarus from the dead and I always did what pleased the Father. Um, when that sinks in, or at least with me, when that sank in, really started to sink in, I realized my only righteousness has been credited to me by Jesus. I am not better than anybody. Um, and I don't really have a, a, a platform on which to judge anybody for anything because I'm a convicted felon, forgiven. Jesus took my sentence for me. And he's clothed me with, I mean, his resume. There's nothing I'm going to do that's going to embellish that resume. And so as that has sunk into my heart, it has really changed how I interact with people. Um, not, and it wasn't quick. It's been over, over years, over decades. Um, as I spend time every day reading my Bible in the morning, um, particularly when I get to the Gospels, I just weep because... I see myself as the sinner and I don't try to cover that up or pretend it's not there not just because of sins I do but because of of sins that that are inside of me you know indwelling sin the the fallenness of humanity and I see his love for sinners and the way that he defends sinners from self-righteous religious people um yeah it's really beautiful and that under, deeper understandings come about mainly through just meditating on the scriptures? Meditating on the scriptures. I also did find some, um, some other pastors who were very gifted preachers who, um, who were very helpful for me. Um, I remember Ray Cortese, who's a, a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Citrus County, Florida, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but it's a huge church. And, and he always has his sermons online for anybody for free to listen to. And I remember when I first started listening to him, um, I would just start to cry during every sermon. Because, you know, preachers also have to be preached to, and that's what the Internet's for. Um, and, um, and I was like, why am I crying? Why am I feeling so moved? Why am I feeling so loved by God? And, and, and with him, it was his ability to tell story. Uh, getting it beyond merely lists of doctrines, um, but his ability to tell stories that would give me a picture of the gospel. Um, yeah. Um, so, as a um, gay person, um, are you involved in any, like, a community with other gay people or do you try to reach out to other 
gay people or anything like that? Yeah, you know, I am involved in a, a community of other celibate Christians who are, however they describe themselves, gay or same-sex attracted, whatever terminology they want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's called Revoice, and uh, it started in 2018 here. Um, and at this point, it's an annual conference, but there are, are groups being gathered. Because, you know, for for gay people who follow Jesus and who do think that the church has gotten the sexual ethic right in general, um, it puts us in a weird place because, you know, many LGBT activists would view us as um, compromised at best or unenlightened, and and yet many conservative Christians would view us as suspect um, because why haven't we become straight? Um and so, for those of us who are, we're in a we're in an odd, um, you know, within a within the Venn diagram. If you can imagine two circles, and one is gay people, and the other is Bible believing Christian people, there's a very tiny sliver of overlap between those two circles that we live in, and uh, and I, I I don't think we're particularly appreciated by either side because one of us looks at us as you're just too gay, and the other looks at us and says you're just too Christian. Um, but when we gather together for support, it's the best worship on the planet. It's just so encouraging because none of us has to explain anything. You know, we don't have to explain why we're celibate and why we're not sexually active uh, like we would in a more progressive context. And we don't have to explain, you know, uh, um, our sexual orientation away with euphemisms like we might in a conservative Christian context. We can, because we're all, we're all the same. I mean, I was... At a conference in um, Houston a few weeks back, it was 600 of us, and it was it's so encouraging. You know, it was the best worship ever, and and uh, mm-hmm. but it's a world that most people wouldn't know exist because our culture tends to think in terms of a culture war between, you know, the liberals and gays on one side and the conservatives and Christians on the other side, and there are other pockets of people that don't fit neatly into that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, we'd be one of them. So when it comes to gay marriage, um, so you're, you have a more of a, like a conservative biblical position that that's just between a man and a woman. But, um, what, how would you talk with someone who was in a gay marriage mm-hmm. and they were a Christian? Um, would you try to steer them straight i mean uh, or would is this something more of personal conviction that you would um just allow you know the holy spirit to be speaking to them about um and would you continue christian fellowship with them yeah how would you deal with that type of situation yeah well i i don't offer advice unless requested (laughs) so i'm not going to go up to somebody and tell them that their relationship, I'm not going to speak into the relationship unless they ask me to, mm-hmm. or unless they want me to be their pastor, and then I'm obligated to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do think that for Christians, um, God calls us either into a marriage between of, of two people of different sexes, within which you know procreation, at least potentially, is a part of that, with you know uh, uh, reproductive systems that are. Um, you know, uh, interconnected 
to bring life or he calls us to be celibate. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 seems to be saying celibacy is the better option for most. Right. Yeah, so what, we, what, what I would like to see to get it right is conservative Christians telling kids in their youth group and their young adults that you should be praying about whether God wants you to celibate or married and step forth in serving God and God will show you which gift he has for you. Um, I know a lot of people who felt pressured into marriages that really think they made the wrong call. You know, it's, it's, so I think there, there is a beauty of celibacy. Jesus says in the coming age, we will be like the angels. There will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the trajectory we're all on, that we'll all be single someday mm-hmm. uh, in, in glory at the resurrection. And so uh, that's a life that Jesus lived out. That's a life that St. Paul lived out. Some of the greatest minds of Christian history, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, um, J. Gresham Machen, who is the, the leader of the fundamentalist faction in the early 20th century in the fundamentalist modernist debate, um, just really uh, some incredible people. John Stott was celibate his entire life, never married. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and there was speculation about his orientation and that nobody could ever really answer because he didn't answer that. He didn't ever speak to that publicly. But, um, you know, there have been a lot of us who walk in celibacy. And, and, and I'm, I'm here to say that, you know, there are better things than sex and romance. Uh, and I can give up sex and I can give up romance. I cannot give up intimacy. I cannot give up being known and knowing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for me, my church provides the context and as well as the, the broader uh, community of, of, uh, of um, gay and same-sex attracted Christians uh, provide a level of family for me that, that, that I feel like I'm thriving. Mm-hmm. I think I heard a uh, Catholic priest one time either tell me, or maybe I read this, I'm not for sure, but he, you know, referring to celibacy among Catholic priest, his um, response was, well, I'm married to the church. And though I, um, I'm, I'm not on board with the whole, um, you need to be celibate if you're a Christian minister or something. I thought that was kind of, I like the response, um, the idea of, um, I got this relationship with the church to, I guess from a a Catholic priest standpoint, he's kind of representing Christ perhaps in a way, and maybe we all are in a way, Mm -hmm. but, um, so he can devote him, his whole self to the body of Christ, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's wild this past, um, this past Father's Day, I got more Father's Day cards than anybody. Oh, wow. Um, from people I've mentored who are now, you know, guys I've poured into when they were young and now they're, 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 dads and husbands and they wanted to say thank you because I was the figure in their life that helped them get there and uh, so um, yeah there's fam- family you know Jesus redefined family um, you know uh, family in antiquity meant the extended family including cousins and aunts and uncles and all of that and, and there's that time where Jesus was teaching and uh, and some uh, his disciples came up to him and said you know you're your, your mother and brothers are here. And within an honor-based, clan-based system, the honorable thing for Jesus to do would have been to stop teaching and then go to his mother and brothers. Hmm. 
And he did not do that. He mm-hmm. did the what, what in that culture would have been viewed as dishonorable. And he said, who, he didn't go, and he said, who are my father and mother and brothers but you who do the will of my father in heaven? Mm-hmm. Um, meaning, for the Christian, the church is to be the primary locus of family. And that's very different because Americans think about church as a consumer product that they go to and they either like what they see or they don't like what they see. But, but Jesus defines church as something where we're mutually obligated to be there when we need each other. Uh, family is a place where they know when your plane is landing. Family knows what you look like first thing in the morning. Family you don't have to dress up for. Um, you know, Family you don't have to pretend to be something you're not because they're going to see right through it anyway. That's a biblical vision of church that is very hard for Americans to lean into because we're so individualistic. But um, with that kind of family, it takes some of the pressure off of marriage. You know, like American marriage, you know, the way I joke about it is whenever somebody, guy gets married, I say, for this reason, a man will leave all of his friends and cling to his wife. And, and, and that's it, you know, especially my, my father's age. So many men have no friends. They have coworkers, they have associates, they have people that might do stuff, but they don't have friends. Um, not family-type friends. And, and that's what church is for, um, is to create this community of disciples who are family. Um, and in that context, it takes a lot of pressure off of marriage because... People look to marriage to do things that marriage is never capable of doing. Marriage is never capable of being your entire community. Mm-hmm. It will do not throw that on your spouse. Um, and particularly men need need community, but community they're committed to them. Where where when they're fighting, uh, you know, the husband goes to hang out with his friends, his Christian friends, who are real friends and real family, and and they'll help help him lick his wounds and think through and process stuff and and then send him back to his wife you know that's that's family mm-hmm. um and in that kind of context celibacy is not all that bad of a thing um mm-hmm. i i i I'm, i love it <laughs> the thing about the church the way it's set up you know in our modern day is we probably have people who are legitimately a part of the church right up and down our street and yet we drive sometimes a good distance to get to people, to meet with people who think along the same lines we think and agree with the same things that we agree. So we don't um, exercise like what Paul speaks about, um, I think toward the end of Romans, um, accommodating one another. If one uh, wants to observe a particular day or eats or don't eat meat yeah. and so forth, um, it would be um, really nice to um, do life with the, the Christian brothers and sisters geographically yeah. who yeah. are right around us if we could just um, be joined together through those essential things that make a Christian a Christian and somehow uh, yeah. accommodate one another with the, the others. You know? Yeah, you know, it was interesting at this, this conference I mentioned, you know, um, the thing that we all have in common is is our sexual orientation and our commitment to biblical vision of sex in the family. And yet, um, you know, the guy running around as the photographer is Eastern Orthodox. Um, the first speaker is Roman Catholic. Um, Jewish atheist turned Roman Catholic. 
<laughs> Eve Tushnet. She's a, she's wild. She's amazing. Um, I'm Presbyterian and, and Reformed. Um, others are Baptist. Others are charismatic or non-denominational. Uh, but you've got this cross-section of Christianity. Um, and none of those become issues. Like, we don't even talk about that because we're there to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty beautiful. Yeah. You know, you mentioned friendship. Um, what keeps you close to friends? You know, um, so many men you mention have friends in college and school, and then, you know, they but they don't maintain those relationships. Um, yeah. Every once in a while, you run into someone, and you know, their group, their friends, they still somehow maintain that they get together occasionally. And so, is there anything? That you do, um, yeah. Because we're all full of good intentions, yeah. But that's not enough sometimes, you know, when it comes yeah. to getting us to where we want to be. And yeah, you know, you know, uh, you know C.S. Lewis talked about how the thing that that really forms a friendship is a is a third thing hmm. that you yeah. both have in common. It mm-hmm. Could be an interest in something, um, be an interest in sports. It could be an interest in cars. It could be an interest in theology. You name it, but. Because, you know, while, while a couple tends to sit face-to-face, uh, friends tend to be shoulder-to-shoulder, both looking at a third thing that's a, a topic of interest. Yeah. And so, as adults, you know, in, in, in throughout school and in college, we don't really pick our friends. Um, they're just there because you're with a whole bunch of people the exact same age with all the same cultural experiences who watched all the same television shows and all the same movies and listened to the same music and you got tons of stuff in common and then you're out of college and you're just lost and you think oh how do I make friends where do I find friends what and now I have to choose my friends and they have to choose me back and how does that work um but uh yeah I could tell you about one friend of mine We've been friends for 20 years. Uh, we get together every Thursday evening to hang out. Hmm. And we've done that for at least 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows everything about me. I know everything about him. He's uh, a very close friend. Um, and, yeah, we text through the week and then see each other on Sunday morning. But it's really that three hours every Thursday that we're hanging out over decades that um, has formed a friendship that is deep. Um, another one that I, I get coffee with an elder in my church every Thursday since 2002, so that's been 19 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you know, there's a family in my church that moved here 20 years ago to be involved in my life and ministry in part, and I've been into their home hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, I... I you know, you can tell a friend is a friend when they don't have to ask permission to open your refrigerator. <laughs> you know, they have refrigerator rights. Mm-hmm. And everybody needs to have multiple people in their life who have refrigerator rights because that's the sign that you actually have friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was interesting. C.S. Lewis, um, his very best friend was a guy na- named um, Arthur. And uh, they grew up as teenagers together. They lived across the street in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And, uh, and um, C.S. Lewis describes the time when Arthur first came, uh, or when he first went across the street to, uh, 
to uh, Arthur's place. Arthur was laid up in bed. Arthur was a few years older than him. But uh, he had a book on Old Norse mythology on his bedstand. And C.S. Lewis looked at it and said, do you like that? And it's like, I do like that. And then they started going through it and they realized not only did they like the same things about it, they liked the same aspects of the same things about it. And they just, C.S. Lewis called uh, Arthur his, his uh, first and, and best friend. And their correspondence um, has been bound together. Uh, and just Arthur's letters, or just Lewis's letters to his best friend Arthur were almost 600 pages in length. Like they were writing constantly wow. to one another, and and Arthur was gay. Um, Arthur came out to to Lewis around 1918 as gay, and uh, and Lewis wasn't going to judge him because Lewis had had dabbled in in uh, sadomasochism. Actually, um, he uh, would sign letters to Arthur, philomastix, um, which means whip lover, uh, and he this is. He was still an atheist at the time. And then when um, Lewis became a Christian, the first person he told was Arthur Greaves, his, his, his gay best friend, who was thrilled for him. And, uh, and Lewis, of course, was straight. Um, he was, though he was only married for three or four years his entire life, he, he was celibate. But uh, when Lewis became a Christian, he asked um, Arthur to destroy all those letters where he'd signed him Whiplover because he was ashamed of them. Mm-hmm which Arthur didn't do. He kind of blotted out those parts, but, you know, historians were able to, you know, figure that out. But, you know, they vacationed together. Um, Lewis begged Arthur to move to, to England to, to live nearby because uh, Lewis had a very large circle of, fr- of very close friends um, um, and some very famous ones now, but, um, but he wanted Arthur to be in on that Arthur had some significant health issues that limited that but uh, yeah that's why Lewis writes very extensively about Christian friendship because it was such an important part of his life yeah so you had to tell your congregation that you were gay because at some point right Mm -hmm. so um, I guess how did how did that go? Was that, um, yeah. yeah, how, how did that happen? And how did that go? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was interesting. Um, you know, I, cause it was before my testimony came out in Christianity today. You know, like I wanted my congregation to hear it from me directly, the, the right. story. And it, many of them had heard, heard parts of it in private. It had just never been publicly shared, particularly not that public. Um, you know, I don't think many people were surprised, you know. I mean, when I was a 30-year-old single pastor in this church, everybody wanted to introduce me to their sister, their niece, their granddaughter, their best friend, Charisse. By the time I was 40 pastoring in this church as a single pastor, they were wanting decorating advice. You know, it's just, they they kind of pieced it together. Mm -hmm. Um, So very few people were surprised. Um, We when I shared shared this my testimony, um, the congregation stood up and gave me a five minute standing ovation, um, and uh, and the elders read a letter of support unanimously signed by all of the elders expressing their support for me, 
Um, we had a few people who left the church for various reasons related to that. Um, maybe family pressure. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, they responded very well, which, you know, I'm thankful for. But, you know, it's a congregation that gets the gospel. They know they're sinners. Uh, they know they're not better than anybody else. They know we're all sinners. And, uh, and they know that sinners are the only class of people that Jesus came to save. And so, uh, yeah. I was talking with a uh, young man who was gay, and he had a he wasn't a Christian, but he had a Christian background. He asked me um, what I thought about um, homosexual marriage and stuff. So, anyway, so I just started to kind of um, piece together my <laughs> framework for it, starting with you know how God created marriage between man and woman and how that's the um, only expression for sex and everything like that. And what he came back with was, um, and you mentioned this earlier, that Paul speaks of marriage as a concession, but he says, but it's better to marry than to burn with lust. Mm -hmm. So so he, what his response to me was, so what about for the gay person? It's better to what than burn for lust, burn with lust. I mean, there's just not a answer. And I was kind of I was impressed with him. Uh, for one reason, he came to me with an argument from Scripture, yeah, and yeah. it didn't solve the problem at all. But it did help me to feel it, or or just kind of show me that this is a problem, you know, and heighten yeah. that in my mind. Yeah, but um, I guess um, for the Christian, you know, the, the the response is that God's grace is sufficient, or something along those lines. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's you know, I have friends who have been able to develop a sexual attraction to one person of the opposite sex that is not generalized to others that can happen and there are always more people who are bisexual than are are exclusively gay um but uh um so there's always the possibility of marrying somebody of the opposite sex the downside is those marriages have had about a 70 percent divorce rate it's very hard to pull that off and especially back in the ex-gay days where they often didn't tell their spouse that they were gay mm -hmm. um, not many marriages survived the revelation later on that, that that was the case you know I think any spouse would have expected to have been told that before they got engaged let alone married um, but uh, yeah you know I think today we, we tend to assume that we're entitled to a full and happy life and that that we assume has to include marriage um, but God on this side of the fall God doesn't promise that I mean God said in the garden the day you eat of this fruit you will die and and the fact that I'm not dead right now means I'm facing an incredibly merciful stay of execution um, and everything that I get that's not death and condemnation is a blessing. And so um, I've never really felt uh, personally like I'm some kind of victim. Um, I mean, I think I'm, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ 
who leads me, you know, he continually leads me in triumphal procession in Christ. Um, But I have to say, conservative churches have done a very bad job loving gay people. You know, there's a lot to repent of, um, a great deal. Um, Just the way we micromanage the language people use, the way that we tell people, oh, you might be there now, but God won't leave you there, basically suggesting that if you were really believing, then you would have become straight by now, you know. All the well-meaning things that people say that end up wounding. Um, I've got a book coming out December 7th um, where I talk about a lot of this. It's it's a Zondervan book, um, Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. Hmm. And, uh, and I talk about some of uh, of how kind of an older generation of Christians viewed gay people, you know, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and John Stott and Richard Lovelace and, and Billy Graham, who had a really positive and healthy perspective that was very balanced with both biblical truth and grace. And then I talk about the ex-gay movement, which came and promised cure. And, uh, and it didn't end well. You know, by the time Exodus International, which was the big you know, ex-gay umbrella organization shut down. Um, It had announced that 99.9% of their affiliate clients had not seen a change in their sexual orientation. This this thing's deeply rooted. Um, And so all those years laying that expectation of change um, hurt a lot of people. But I also talk about what does it look like, not to cure, but to care. What does it look like when a church that does believe the Bible and wants to be faithful to Scripture, what does it look like to actually care for the gay person who comes to Jesus or the kid in your youth group who comes out, you know? How do you love that kid um, in a way that does not compromise your, your biblical convictions but does right by him? And uh, that's maybe some people might view that as a tricky needle to thread, but I, I, I give it a stab. Or the person who doesn't come out, but they're hearing everything that goes back and forth around them on the issue. Yeah, um, I talked not too long ago to uh, uh, a 10-year-old kid who um, is his pastor, and then his dad had reached out to me because he's, he's only 10 years old, but he's, he's afraid he's gay. Um, and, and, uh, and so he cries himself to sleep every night, afraid that God will, will hate him because he's been raised in the church and he's gone to Christian camp and Christian Sunday schools and he hears other Christian kids say that, that gay people can't be saved. And here this kid hasn't even hit puberty yet and he's crying himself to sleep because he's afraid that God hates him. Um, that's what our church is. That's the environment our church is. And his is a good church. Mm-hmm. Um, like very clear on grace, very clear on on the gospel. Um, you know, he's afraid to go to church because he's afraid that that they'll throw something up on the wall that says that he's going to go to hell, and that's not going to happen. Um, I know his pastor, but um, yeah, for kids who are maybe not gender conforming to what we would expect in the church, for kids who who are gay or whatever term you want to use for that. Um, We've not done well. There is one resource if you're ever in this situation. Um, it's by a ministry called Posture Shift, uh, Bill Henson, and it's called Guiding Families of LGBT Loved Ones. 
And basically, if you're a parent and your kid tells you they're gay, it will tell you exactly what not to do and exactly what to do in terms of the, that important follow-up conversation where you say that you're so sorry that mom and dad weren't involved in this part of your life and weren't there to support you for it. But we want to be, uh, we, we want to know your whole story. And you find out if they've had suicidal thoughts, if they've been bullied, how they're treated at church, open-ended questions, and it uh, kind of walks you through what to do uh, from somebody who's done this thousands of times. But, uh, yeah. Now, you mentioned micromanaging the things, uh, way people might refer to them, gay people and so forth. Um, So that's something I've heard um, and had to kind of give it a little thought. Um, they, I've, people have expressed that they have a problem with the term, you know, gay Christian. Yeah. yeah. And I can see, um, I was listening to someone else and they were uh, talking about how it's dangerous to um, identify as a, a conservative because that's not essentially who we are, that we, our essential identification is, um, you know, belonging to Jesus. So... I can, so there could be some, I can see how there could be some um, concern about how we identify in just an essential way, but then we do use the term conservative or liberal, Republican, and so we do use labels. We identify as all sorts of things. Right. And it's kind of like shorthand for just referring to something about a person. So I, do you have anything to say about just, you know, the... The labels and micromanaging how people yeah yeah because uh, you know the 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 history is you know before the 1990s the term that was typically used was homosexual it was considered somewhat neutral but then um, by 1990 or so using homosexual as a noun was no longer really seen as, as appropriate because it had all sorts of history in criminology and psychology and um, some of it pretty ugly, and so um, certainly gay activists, you know, had already been using the term gay to describe themselves as an alternative to homosexual, something that was less clinical sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, then with the ex-gay movement and conversion therapy, the conversion therapists uh, developed the language of same-sex attraction sort of as a euphemism for gay, um, and so a lot of conservative Christians prefer that. Um, because it's familiar to them. It, it marks somebody off as, oh, they're not gay, they're just same-sex attracted, even though I can't tell you what the difference is between the two. It means you like people the same sex. Um, and uh, and then particularly people get upset with the couplet gay Christian used together um, because maybe they, they feel like somebody's saying that their Christianity is gay. And I, I don't know anybody who's ever used it to mean that. They, typically, when that language is used, they're just trying to find a shorthand way to say that, that they're Christians and they're, they're gay in sexual orientation. And the reason that they'll point those two things out are those are the two biggest things that have shaped their life. Um, they're, if they were just gay, they'd have a boyfriend. If they were just Christian, you know, it'd be different. But, but they're those two things together, and so that's the tension in which they live mm-hmm. of being... Um, 
uh, in the, the no man's land in a culture war. And so I understand why they use it. I personally have avoided that term more often than not just because it, it confuses certain religious people of a certain generation. But, um, but I will absolutely fall on a sword to defend somebody else's right to describe their experience using words that, that mean something to them. Um, yeah, and, you know, a lot of it depends when we talk about identity. That can mean so many different things. Um, if by identity you're talking about the core identity on which you build your life, the identity that defines who you are, who you want to be, and how you'll live your life, then obviously for any Christian that has to be Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus is never willing to be anyone's advisor. He's your Lord, you know, or you're not a Christian. Um, he doesn't want to be anybody's consultant. But if you're talking about all the things that are true about you, that's another much more common way we talk about identity, then um, then I think it's perfectly natural for somebody to to describe themselves as, as gay or homosexual or queer or same-sex attracted or whatever term they want to use um, because it's important that they be honest with themselves. Um, you know, in, in my ex-gay conversion therapy years, I spent a lot of time trying to convince myself that I was a straight man with a disease called homosexuality that would be one day cured. And... Uh, And that certainly made me much more palatable in conservative Christian spaces. (laughs) But but what it did to me is it left me not really feeling the level of grace that Jesus was giving me. Uh, Once I could say, oh, I'm, I'm just a gay kid that Jesus loved, then I could feel his love much more deeply because I was understanding. I was, it was me that was being loved, not this projection of what I ought to be or the mask that I was wearing. Um, yeah. Well, before wrapping up, let's just talk a little bit about your, um, life, like kind of like your devotional life thing. You mentioned, um, meditating on scripture, listening to preaching. Is there any other thing that's been meaningful or, or helpful to you as you go through each day in life and developing, you know, the... A relationship with God, being impacted by the gospel. Yeah, yeah. So many times, it seems like uh, things are kind of separated. Like work can kind of just distract a person because you. It, it seems to me like it's hard to think of keep two things in mind at one time. Yeah. So you have your time in the Bible, or I have my time in the Bible, and there my thoughts are on God. And then I go, and then I have my thoughts on some kind of problem I'm trying to solve. Yeah. And it would be nice to um, cultivate something along the lines of, I don't know, Paul speaks about praying without ceasing or yeah. just something where we're doing all that we do in the name of Jesus. And any routines yeah. or practices that have been helpful to you? Yeah. Channel your anxiety. Your anxiety. Um, when, when Paul says in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things with prayer and petition, let your request be made known to God. What he's, what he's telling us is that our anxiety is an invitation to, to, to argue with God if needed, you know, hmm. uh, to cast our cares on him because he cares for us, uh, or cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And so, um, like, when, 
my workday task is to work on a sermon. I will be studying the scripture, I'll be looking at the languages, trying to figure out what exactly this means, trying to think about how it's relevant, what here does my congregation particularly need to hear, what might be particularly challenging, where, you know, illustrations that'll help them see and feel this and not just get it intellectually. I'm doing all of that work. But invariably, there's some point at which I just throw everything down on the floor and say, God, if you want this sermon to be preached, you're going to have to come up with it because I cannot do this on my own and I will not do this on my own. You're going to have to help, Lord, so that your people hear your voice. That, that's, that's intimacy with God. It's right. not irreverence. It's mm-hmm. just understanding that, you know, when I can't find a parking spot, Lord, if you want me to have a parking spot, you're going to have to give me a parking spot. Otherwise, I'll just keep driving. And you just, you know, all the little things we worry about, we worry all the time about things. Uh, we, we, maybe we don't call it worry, stress or, or concern or whatever. We, we, we want to whitewash it. But, but we feel anxiety all the time throughout the day. Um, and if you can channel all of that into communication with God depending on him even even helping identify your anxieties asking him to help you with that so that you can cast them on him um, that's been a big thing um, that for me is much more like I do every night before I go to bed um, I pray the Lord's Prayer and anything that comes to mind um, that I feel like God wants me to pray about um, and, and then for years, my pattern is, uh, to, it's actually a, a old Puritan devotional pattern was getting in your bed at night and imagining it's your coffin hmm. and practicing for the resurrection. Oh, wow. And, and Lord, as I crawl into this grave, I pray that I'll rise again in the morning, uh, practicing for that last time when we're all going to have to give up consciousness one last time and trust that Jesus will, will bring us up again on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the morning, I always wake up in the morning, and the first thing I say is, this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it, and I thank God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of that's to come. So I'm framing my day very intentionally around death and resurrection, uh, reporting for duty, um, meditating on his word in the morning while I drink my coffee after the cats have been fed. Uh, and... Uh, and then um, wrestling with God in prayer through the day in a way that it's, it's in the direction of without ceasing, but it's, you know, sporadic. It's, uh, but, uh, but a daily experience of throwing things onto him. Um, there's a, a learned helplessness where we realize how little control we actually have, how much of it's just an illusion. And... Uh, and when we can learn our helplessness, that gives us all sorts of anxiety with which to turn to God in prayer. Hmm. That's interesting, that practice, that Puritan practice you mentioned. Because yeah. I've thought about that, and like I really hope that when I'm breathing my last breath, I feel the presence of God. But I know sometimes, like right now, if I'm just miserably sick or something, I don't always. Sometimes I feel <laughs> alone. Yeah. And I've thought sometimes how close I feel to God or how not close I feel to God 
I think sometimes may have to do something with perhaps an area of unrepentance in my life. Um, we tend to segregate our life and but into different areas. But I think for me, I'm speculating, but I think that if there's like one particular area where I have a little bit of a troubled conscience in, it's affecting my whole life and perhaps affecting whether I feel God's presence or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is interesting because I, at those times when what we depend upon, we depend upon this body so much, you know, and, but it's not going to last forever. So when it slips away, we, you know, would like to not feel alone, but rather to feel full of hope, even feel spiritually God's presence with us. Yeah. Well, I remember one, uh, I can't remember who it was. It was a historic Christian figure. He turned to his wife. He was on his deathbed. And and his experience was he said, Honey, I now know for certain that I am a Christian because I have never done anything righteous in my life. And it was his way of saying that now he realizes he's given up all his own righteousness, that he's just trusting in Jesus. And uh, and mm-hmm. so the the wow. fact that he could see even his best stuff was drenched in sin uh, gave him a peace that uh, that it's not all in him; it's all in Jesus. Um, yeah, one of the one of the other things that has been very helpful for me in terms of just growing closer with Jesus um, something we don't do enough. Um, is asking forgiveness when I've hurt other people. And when you're a pastor, you talk a lot. And you have the, the potential to trigger somebody's wounds that you don't know about um, unintentionally. And, uh, and of course, whenever we hear something like that, our first instinct is to want to defend ourselves. But, you know, the Bible says do no harm. It doesn't say don't intend to do harm. That's a given. But it also says do no harm. And so even when we've hurt somebody and it wasn't our intention, um, and maybe it's 90% on them to still to be able to drop everything, go to them, ask them how it affected them, ask their forgiveness, receive that. Um, it's living out that gospel cycle in community of full disclosure and complete acceptance. And it's, it's a... A great thing just to, to humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, knowing that the Lord will lift you up. So even if you had every good intention, yeah. but somehow your words may have affected somebody else yeah. um, in a, a bad way, there's a place there for asking for forgiveness. Yeah, because I hurt because I hurt them. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't intend to, but I did hurt them. And the Bible says, "Love does no harm." And so you know, if I had loved them more, known them more, invested more in them, I might have understood their triggers and found a different way to say it. And after being forgiven, the next time I, I, I try to do that because I know them better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely something where we, we descend into greatness. It's, it's not a theology of glory where we get better and better and better. It's a, a theology of the cross where we Go back to the cross again and again, humbling ourselves before others, asking forgiveness, believing the gospel, um, 
you know, the, the gospel is always good news when you know you've blown it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, I think the proverb, though, that like um, the wounds of a friend are to be trusted or something along those lines. So yeah. there is um, a time for for that type of thing, too. But I, but I, I think I understand what you mean, though, that sometimes are... Um, because we don't know the person well enough and yeah. uh, we may have done negative um, damage or could have done something better or something along those lines. Yeah, when somebody's hurt and they're blaming you, mm-hmm. always hear that. Well, unless they're a sociopath or a manipulator in an abusive marriage or something like that. You know, there's always those... those right. Right. You, obviously, at some point, I hurt somebody and have now learned that to throw that qualification out <laughs> because obviously there was somebody at some point that was in an abusive marriage and I told them the wrong thing for their sake. Uh, but, you know, unless it's some kind of abusive situation, you know, when somebody's hurt and pointing the finger at you, that is almost always an invitation to grace, to bring grace to them, to bring grace to you, to humble yourself before them. And that's where God's glorified. Um, and that's where non-Christians notice the difference. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, when non-Christians can see a Christian friend not being better than everybody else, but watches their co-worker's husband drives, into, drives to her office on the lunch break to ask forgiveness for something that he had said that was inconsiderate that morning. You know, all the Christians in that workplace are looking at that thinking, that doesn't happen. What's going on there? But it's a Christian, and it's that gospel cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance. It's what Jesus does for us, and we do for each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. The world sees its beauty. Yeah. Well, thanks, Pastor Greg. Yeah. I mean, just talking with you is uh, encouraging and instructive. I think it's going to be really good for something for me to re-listen to and for anyone listening I think they'll appreciate it so I appreciate it um, so. anything you want to leave as far as um, I don't know if you blog I know you have a book and you have one coming out so. yeah yeah the one coming out is December 7th um, okay. you can pre-order it now but it's called um, Still Time to Care What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality uh, Greg Johnson Zondervan um and uh, you can also look up my name in Christianity Today. I've got a few things out there. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.